Sun. This is uh, our second episode that we're recording uh, after our first episode, our pilot episode. Welcome back. Um, I'm Jay Outway. I'm the dragon of Like Dragon and Sun. And I am Jack Outway. I am the son of Like Dragon, Like Sun. That's right. Um, uh, last time we didn't really introduce ourselves much more than just that. Um, we explained that we're you know, two different generations of D&D players. Mm-hmm. Um, I started playing back in the 1980s. and I started playing in the late 2000s. Well, no, 2010. So, yeah. Uh, maybe even later than that. Maybe, maybe even later than that, yeah, yeah. Very recent, very recent play. 2015, I think I got you the your first set of books mm-hmm. uh, for your, like, 10th birthday. So D&D 5E was quite new. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really been seen 5E at all um, and played D&D for quite some time so even though I was buying the books for you I kind of secretly knew I was buying them for you me to get back into D&D and that's just what happened yeah um, and uh, and then you started playing more D&D with your friends and I was quite jealous sitting on the sidelines for a while and now the table's kind of turned yeah and recently I have many more campaigns going than you do but I have zero is, campaigns going this, on is, right this is the nature of D&D it, it ebbs and flows sometimes as we find groups of people whose timings all get together uh, well and give us an opportunity to sit down and play um, but we even whether we're playing or not playing we spend a lot of time talking about yeah. D&D a lot, a lot, a lot of time. So, uh, given that we live in the era of podcasts, we thought, uh, since we're talking about D&D anyways, we might as well record some of these mm. talks that we do. Yeah. And we have a notebook full of all sorts of things that uh, we would like to discuss and share with the world. So, what are we talking about today? Well, last time we spoke a bit about uh, one of our Fitnut characters, the Celestial Warlock, Vimok Hightower. Uh, we went into length about how we built him, sort of an, as an introduction to how we build characters on a series uh, against the tropes, steal this character, again, still working on names. Uh, and we perhaps discussed what the three pillars of Dungeons & Dragons are, at least 5th edition. Uh, and I made the case that they were exploration, roleplay, and combat. Uh, yeah, I, I think that, I mean, I love 5th edition. I mm. think what, where we are with D&D right now, there's never been a better time to play D&D. And I play with some people who are very old school. Um, I, I call them Gygaxian. Um, they often really like sort of doing things the old-fashioned way. Um, but every time we bring new players to the table and they get a taste of role-play and they get a taste of uh, skill-based adventure and, you know, more open sandbox campaigns where 
there's more options of, of where we want to go and how we want to try and build character arcs, um, you get very excited players. And yeah, that exploration and uh, mm. character sort of side of role play side yeah. of things are, are huge. Mm. Um, when you think of combat, though, I suppose, what are you, what, what aspect of that are you, excites you or do you like? I think a lot of D&D 5th edition, especially subclass abilities or abilities in general, revolve around things you can do in combat. And each class has their own way of sort of standing on those three pillars of D&D. Some focus into more than others. You know, some classes are very like potent in terms of roleplay, but every class has a roleplay potential. You know, uh, many of my friends say they love to roleplay warlocks just because it's so easy to get behind the idea of this big patron. Um, very sort of roleplay heavy class. Same with Bard, you know, very roleplay face can be very interesting, like playing a uh, musical instrument and you can be creative with it. Some classes are built for exploration, like in concept, the ranger, um, some other classes, druid, um, things that traverse the land and are, are made for going far, which we don't see a lot of, but I feel like it's a very sort of key aspect. Yeah, but you never, you're never really playing D&D alone. It's so, true. It's true. And it's, you know, the, it's the idea that you can build on each other, you know? Yeah. I mean, you need a group that can do these sorts of things together. And I suppose that's, you know, that's the thing that maybe newer players forget about a bit when they're building mm. um, characters. Yeah, I, I get why people think warlocks are great fun. Um, why... You know, it's straight up edgy and easy. But again, I, I something that I strongly believe is, is about trying to break those stereotypes, trying to play um, playing warlocks or bards who aren't the the typical ones. Right, right. Like to see over time. And that's a fun way to keep things interesting. I think something brilliant about 5th edition is that you can take these core ideas and spin them in new and interesting ways. Sure. Find new ways to build upon the three pillars of D&D. And roleplay is quite a heavy aspect in the way we do that. And a lot of the way you can take liberty with your character. Because there's a lot of rules around combat, sure. right? And while you are given a lot with it, roleplay is how you take that and make that interesting, you know? And it can be... It's, it's not just... Because there can be exploration within combat. And there can be roleplay within combat, you know? And it's just sort of three sort of parts of D&D. Oh, there yeah. are other parts, but Don't they're the most major things. My, um, every time the DM says, roll for initiative, mm. uh, I get a little shot of adrenaline. My heart rate picks up a little bit. Um, it's super excited. Uh, I, I'm very fortunate to play uh, with some DMs who do some really great battle maps. And uh, myself and all my fellow players have got really great minis um, mm -hmm. that we've all custom designed and painted. So people take a lot of pride when that sort of bit happens. Um, I guess what I've, I've come to learn, though, is that it's okay to be the character on the battle map who does the least amount of damage. Yeah. No, nobody cares. No, In fact, no. it... it it almost lets those players who who really care about being the person to do the most damage, um, it gives them that little moment 
to sort of to feel yay I, I you know I did 20 some points of damage this round or 40 or 60 mm-hmm. or whatever crazy number right. you can get that cranked up to um, yeah I think though there's there's other bragging rights we should look at on the combat table like um, did you manage to help give your teammates advantage uh, in every round of attack or did you you know were you there to heal somebody back up when they went down um, there's a lot of things that happen in combat that are unexpected um, things mm-hmm. go wrong uh, best plans fall apart uh, things that seem like a good idea and in one moment uh, a dice roll later seem like a really really bad idea mm-hmm. and uh, yeah the having making yourself a support character is is one of the greatest things you can do and I, I don't know maybe it it takes more it takes some time to get to a point where you're okay not being able to deal huge amounts I certainly know I think there can be characters that are heavy damage dealers that are fantastic in parties like not everyone can play a support and support's aren't for everyone you know I think it's a, definitely a play style uh, right now would you rather deal damage or play support it depends how much my like the party composition if my party is all damage dealers which they usually are then I will feel free to play a support you know or try and take on more of a role play aspect the, the Wednesday game that you were playing which has sort of been on pause uh, the last few weeks for you I'm not a damage dealer in that yeah so you play a support role in that well I play more of an exploration heavy like discovery like figuring things out sort of is the nature of a divination wizard um, is getting understanding and I feel like that's a part of like the three main pillars you know there's the damage dealers and in the same combat vein it's not only damage it's healing you know and healing is a big part of combat as well and keeping people alive and supporting and that's the comp- uh, combat aspect but most of the spell list I've chosen is for exploration and for movement and for under- discovering things seeing behind walls um, for telling the future all those sorts of ideas that are almost out of combat well and I, I know as a DM um, I like very much players who have characters that make it easier for me to reveal parts of the story right um, you know you obviously have to design adventures so that if the players miss clues or miss story beats or skip over sections or do all the crazy unexpected things that players inevitably do um, that you know the story still work, the adventure still works but it's nice when you've got you know those with the good investigation skills, mm. um, those with some, you know, proficiency in, invest- in investigation or points of intelligence to mm. to help uh, uncover the clues that are left along the way, and not just you know blindly running through things, hacking and slashing. Yeah. Um, I think investigation is one of those underrated skills. Uh, mm. I think you and I were talking about the other day saying that, you know, if you had to choose investigation or perception, which way would you perception. go? Perception. I'm on team perception. And and why would you do that? Just because perception is so much more needed and versatile. 
like the amount of times I've been told to make investigation is easily dwarfed by the number of times I've been asked to make a perception check. Sure. And, and yeah, perception is probably the most common. Yeah. The most used stat. Ability uh, check. Skill check. Um, and, and I know like lots of published modules and even the stuff that I try to do, write go, I try to go beyond that. And I, I see it as well where it's not like every room you walk into, it's like, okay, make a perception check or something. The mm-hmm. first person with really good perception goes, okay, I, you know, what do I see in this room or whatever? It, it, you know, I think there's a, I think it gets really boring really fast if your whole game pivots on perception. Right. It right. becomes the stat that everybody starts taking, uh, or, you know, even if you don't have wisdom as a, as a good ability, You'll often take proficiency in perception just to help make up for that little right, bit. Right, right. Um, but yeah, perception and passive perception, it's everywhere. So you take a long rest mm. and, oh, we got to watch out for danger. Right. Well, what's that going to be? Oh, it's perception. Mm. And, oh, we're looking for a secret doors. Oh, there's perception. Although you said when you DM, you make, you make investigation the secret door. Well, just for some things, like if they're going to, like they can't just look at something and see how it works or what it does, or see something that's supposed to be unperceivable. The the rules are that investigation is there to figure out how the door opens. Well, Um, I do investigation if they're like, oh, you can do a perception check against the room, which will tell them some information, or you can do an investigation check across the room. Like, I imagine investigation is going in close and looking at things, giving it like a pat down and sort of looking like like feeling up the like the wall to see if there's any sort of like changes and like surface texture where perception is more of a, a yeah, general I, scan I think of right? investigation as like the CSI unit shows up like right right you know you walk into a room and you're like oh there was a fight in this room but investigation starts to go well it started over here and then he got knocked down and it broke this chair mm-hmm. here and then you know, I'd, I'd tie, I'd tie across the room here. Yeah, I'd make investigation more of like a physical like things in the room or perceptions like you can generally tell that there was a scuffle in the room, right? Where an investigation like reveals like you see like broken shards of like this like chair or this window and like obviously this like something a small creature must have been thrown through this window you know giving them interesting I, I, like, I like going one step further if there's bodies in the room right then you actually go back to the wisdom step and say being perception becomes a medicine check well that's up to you as a I DM. like that a lot when a lot well I as a player, as a player I ask yeah. for it as well um, I mean I would I would allow medicine. investigation for that as well because I like I like when like medicine doesn't medicine doesn't get picked up very much like yeah uh, you know, given it's the same ability score as perception. Um, well, it's just a sort of its application, you know? Yeah, but I, I think, you know, the game is ability scores first, right? And then proficiency in particular skills give you flavor underneath that. So, you know, if you've got a character that's a dex wisdom build, then go back and try to use some of the other skills under wisdom. Right. Don't always just lean on proficiencies either. Like, you gotta... I don't know. You gotta sort of, like... You gotta think about, like, how you... I mean, it's obviously you should play to your character, right? If you're good in something, your character is gonna follow what's good with that. But sometimes you need to sort of step out of the box and try and discover how to be creative with certain aspects of your character, you know? Like, do I... Though I do love perception and its versatility and how easy it is as a DM to, you know stealth and have NPCs stealth up on my players 
because of their passive perception or how rewarding it is for my player to make a passive perception check to overhear something or see something interesting, you know? But there is times for other stats and sometimes perception can be overused. And it's easy to just say, make a perception check, right? But how else could you word that? You know, are you in a, a thick jungle, you know? And like, like there's like rustling like through things and like you need to identify like what type of footprints are sort of being made or whatever. I would allow investigation to investigate the footprints, right? Or survival to, or nature even, like identifying what kind of animal could have made this. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, ultimately it, ping-pongs back and forth between intelligence or wisdom. Right. And maybe as a DM as well, just as you would with the physical ones of acrobatics and athletics, where there's a lot of cases where, you know, depending what type of character it is, which, you know, solution they would go for, mm-hmm. you know, you can let the players have some agency on that as well. They can either make a nature check or a, you know, perception check. I, I, I think... If there's a way to encourage players not to always take perception, that'd be great. Mm. Yeah. I, 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 again, as a DM, I like to give my players sort of like an array of different things they can do with their abilities, you know, and try and give opportunities for everybody, you know? Like, um, I think religion is also one of those really underused stats, and everyone thinks of it as just like, how religious are you? But that's not necessarily what it is. It could be an understanding of the the, the nature of otherworldly beings, you know? Like, not all... It's like, I, I see nature as understanding things on the material plane, and I see religion as understanding things on extra, like, dimensional, sort of otherworldly planes. Yeah. Uh, again, these are you know, the four lore skills, right? Your religion, arcana, history, and nature. Right. Um, they really are about, you know, helping that exploration pillar mm-hmm. get unlocked, helping the DM find ways to, uh, you know, bring more of the pieces of the story out. Absolutely. Get more of the players tied in and invested in the story. When you start going, oh my God, that's how that works, and that relates to that, and they're interconnected. Right. You know, players at the table, if they don't, if they don't start to understand the story that they're in, if they don't have hooks and things where they can connect their character into the bigger story and even reveal secrets about their characters to the other characters, um, yeah, without the explora- that exploration mm. portion of it, you can have the coolest character build in the world. Uh, either like we talked about by having one that's really weird and cool or having one that's just sort of maxed out so you can crush in combat um, yeah the the story you know the exactly that's that's still I think there's never been a better time for it I think the I think in yeah. D&D right now is is at its all-time greatest making an exploration rich or a role-play rich character can be just as rewarding as making a combat rich character and that can be reflected in the skills or can be in the reflected, like in the way you play a character, you know? If you take the time to create a unique character that speaks to you and that you love to role play, you can be just as much as a force on the table as the person putting out, what, 40, 50 points of damage a turn, you know? It's it's really the lasting memory because are people going to remember the, the whatever fighter Joe Schmo who could, you know, do however much damage, right? Yeah, I mean, if you've just recreated that, I mean, I'm so sorry, but the barbarian who yeah. 
the berserker barbarian yeah. Yeah, who is you know big and dumb and wields a battle axe and no offense to those of you out there playing the berserker barbarians I guess like I said my the thing that and I, uh, let's just back up a step. There is no wrong way to play D anD. d If nope. you're playing these things and you're having fun, you're you're playing it right. right. You're doing it right. But if you show up at my table with that character, or if we were talking about starting a campaign, you're like, I want to do this. I would strongly encourage you to try and think of a way to make it special. Mm-hmm. To try and make it more you. To try and make it, you know, less textbook, less just like mm-hmm. picture. Yeah. you see in the player's handbook like let's let's do something unusual let's step outside of let's make something memorable you know let's make yeah. D&D something special for you you know and make a character that is not like anyone else's character you know I mean, I mean that sort of goes against the idea of steal this character but we're sort of just offering these ideas and these nuggets of how you can avoid falling into dump stat intelligence barbarian berserker right and it's okay you can like those stats are fine but if you can find a unique way to add to the exploration or the combat or the role play in a different way you can really enrich your experience in dungeons and dragons and and so when when you hear people talking about oh that subclass is crap uh, because you know it's it doesn't it's not very good or even that whole class like you know people hating on rangers um yeah, I get I get why they hate on them because they're they're not as they're not as effective on the combat or in the exploration. Maybe, um, but sometimes that's that for me almost just feels like the challenge. Like it's mm-hmm. so you saying, okay, right. well you can't make a good ranger. I'm just suddenly like, okay, well screw you. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm gonna build a ranger character, and yeah, maybe maybe they will kind of suck comparatively but if I build them right in an unusual like cool way that you've never seen like I don't know just like what if I made a ranger who was actually a baker right you know I'm, I'm just pulling this out of my hat right now like start in a really weird place with mm-hmm. that sure and then start building something using the ranger class in the background of it um and yeah, you know their favorite enemy are pie thieves and well humanoids and whatever. Yeah. I mean, you could build it into sort of and, this urban yeah, idea, you know. You know, things that steal their baked goods. Right. Like ha- like maybe you live in like sort of this town where they've got this underground halfling conspiracy, and the halflings are taking all your pies, and now your favorite enemies are halflings because you're thinning off damn those pie your pies, thieves. right? Yeah, and that suddenly just with a, a silly little idea like that, you're off to the races. You're off to this, mm-hmm. like, There's your, okay, yeah, idea right I there. Have, Boom. I have never seen a ranger who's, a, you know, out to get pie thieves before. And then if there's some hook that actually that ties you into... Into the story into or the into story, other players. Even into right. a setting like Waterdeep or something like sure, that. Yeah. Into heist settings and all of these things where you're like, okay, yeah. So I've got this character who actually works in this environment, but he's weird and mm-hmm. bizarre sure they don't have to be the most bizarre you know they can is like sometimes if you go too bizarre you can almost steal the spotlight sure and it, you're absolutely right that's that's a big no-no at the table as well like, right don't be don't be so weird that you that you inhibit others everybody at the table that you, you well know, you can try to not fit in steal but, all the air yeah uh, exactly and that you upstage everybody on every turn 
you don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. You want to yeah. give everyone the opportunity to breathe their characters yeah. to life. Wait for your own time and your own space to shine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but make sure you... You take that, like, you almost, like, let other players... Well, not just let. Like, I think there's an active role in encouraging... Encouraging other... Asking, yeah. Like, you know, setting other players up... up to yeah. have their roleplay moments. You know, give, give them a, an entrance onto the stage. Absolutely. Um, and when you're on the stage, learn to look for your exit. Mm. You know, yeah. look for a dramatic, cool exit that gets you out of there so that others can get on with playing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because the game isn't all about you. No. no. It's about how you sort of interact with everyone else and how they interact with you. And it's a joint memory, almost. That's a hard, that's a hard set of skills. I, I, you know, like we... Like, when I was... You know, your age, I, I did a lot of improv theater, just as you're doing improv theater. Right, right. And the skills that you learn in environments like that, playing games like Yes And, and uh, you know, that stuff is very useful when it comes to then coming back to a D&D table. But well, there's lots of people I play with who've never had those sorts of experiences. And uh, and so, yeah, you, you've got you've to be more patient uh, with people like that and give them a chance to sort of mimic and copy and do the the cool thing that you know the more experienced players are doing do we have a do we have a character bill we're going to talk about today or are we going to do well i had an interesting debate all right on how official unearth arcana is how official and i suppose how friendly you are with homebrew and your relationship with it so this is like D and diy well sure you call it D and diy you could call it i mean this is sort of a debate all right D and diy i mean that we can get into it in another episode, or we can get into now a sort of specific fixing uh, that we want to do, perhaps of certain classes in some of these elements, right? right? Well, and okay, what so we do to change that's a debate. them. I, I, all right, I see where this one's going because you and I have had this argument mm. a few times. Uh, all right, where do you stand on Unearthed or Canada, what we call UA? I stand that I don't treat it as official material. I allow my friends to use it, but if they are using it, I'll let them know, hey. This isn't really official. I'm cool with it. But if things change in the future, you got to understand that that's possible and that maybe you will be slightly more powerful or slightly weaker than all of your other friends. UA is playtest. It, it is playtest. It's clearly listed as that. Um, however, I'm under the firm, firm belief that if we're not the people to playtest it, who the heck are? Um, I love putting it in the games. I love playing with it. Um, I have a UA character whose UA is so old now that it's not even officially listed. It's now archived. That's where I start to feel like you kind of get a bit crazy. And you've had tr- troubles. I mean, it has been funny, but you have had troubles playing your character yeah. because and, of it. And it, this is what playtesting does. It shows you that, oh yeah, that's kind of broken. And and people things build on it. The, the new... Uh, the new... And I guess it's still UA as well, which is the Armorer Artificer. Right, that was just recently released. Right, so as I see that come out, I see very much my old school of invention wizard, uh, my Arcanomech uh, in that build. Um, But my Arcanomech fits. My DM likes him, I like him, we play him in an Eberron campaign, he's a cross of Indiana Jones meets Tony Stark, if Tony Stark was really poor and 
could only find money by going into dungeons. Um, and he's, yeah, part of a ragtag crew on a, you know, flying ship in Eberron who are trying to pay off their ship's mortgage. I almost, by a crime I almost imagine you as Tony Stark crossed with Rorschach. Yeah, he is actually a bit Rorschach-esque in the way he speaks and talks, and he's... Uh, is it an outlook in some ways? I mean, not entirely, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, he's a gray dwarf in a world that, you know, looks upon him uh, with great suspicion everywhere he goes. Uh, but he, he's got a good captain on the ship who trusts and loves him, and he's the chief of the boat. And Yeah, they're, they're a good crew, and they're a great bunch of guys at the table to play with, and it's... Uh, it's okay that I'm playing with them, a mm-hmm. UA playtest character that Wild Magic goes totally awry almost right. every time he tries to use it. And I'm, a, I'm okay, like I said, I'm, I'm a player that is very happy leaning into mistakes. Like, right. I'm okay if my I cast Thunder Wave accident, well, so you have to roll what spell when you randomly cast. And so first spell my last game, you know, in an alleyway, uh, Thunder Wave came out. The target was 30 feet away. Thunder Wave only goes 15. Did nothing, right? Well, it announced our presence to all the other baddies in the area. That was great. Right. Um, but it's okay. Like, you know, I laugh that stuff off. Like, and I'm not against sort of leaning into your flaws or sometimes failing and accepting that and playing into that. I just think that it's a discussion to have with your DM, with the other people that you play with, that you are going to be partaking in the use of unofficial material. That is playtest. And I suppose then it comes up to a wider discussion about how much homebrew you accept. If your player comes to you with a homebrew class or a homebrew or subclass or a homebrew race or a homebrew whatever. I would let a player just completely make their own something. Well, why is that? Well, you're right. There's a good question. I... I somehow feel like it is, and anybody who's homebrewed anything mm. knows that the tendency is to make things too powerful. Mm-hmm. And you can go on Reddit and you can see where people post their ideas for, hey, I've homebrewed this class or this race. Oh, I love And you watch people that. pull it apart. Um, and rightly so, because you know people have good, good instincts when they mm-hmm. review yeah. a homebrew character to know when it's wrong. But when you're building it, almost none of us have good instincts on how to create one that's balanced. And I like to think that somewhere in the you know lofty towers that are Wizards of the Coast, that you know Jeremy Crawford and company are. You know, so knowledgeable about balancing things that when they publish, you know, unearth arcana ideas, that they're already balancing that off of, you know, decades of experience on building balanced stuff. And even then, like I said, we play test it and we realize very quickly sometimes that, nope, the UA ideas are horribly broken. Right. And, and that's okay too. Like, look, there's no right or wrong answer. There's nothing that you do in D&D that's so permanent and so bad that it can't be retconned or fixed somehow by mm. the DM and, you know, a, a, an agreement between the players. Uh, 
I mean, I think the worst thing you can do at a table is really piss off the other players. Right. If you create a character, you homebrew something and you show up, and I think you probably see this with your teenage friends right. a lot more, <laughs> is that their concept of fairness at the table is very different mm-hmm. um, than the, the adults I play with who tend to bring a bit more balance. And the reason that people dislike sometimes the UA stuff the new things is they're worried that it's going to throw off the balance of the table and the enjoyment of the other players is is going to get kind of lost and I, I this is one game that the, the player's no longer there but he was the only one at the table that rolled stats and he had a bunch of 18s uh, at first level he had, it, it just seemed he had this character that was so much better and everyone else. He, like, he almost didn't need the rest of us. He was a one-man party. Right. And the rest of us are a bit like, eh, I'm not sure. You know, like, like, this isn't fun if, you know, if I don't have a part to play here. If this one guy sort of keeps, you know, sort of doing everything for everybody. And, you know, why is he so good and we're not so good? So I guess, you know, I think the... The reason I like UA stuff is it gives us exciting new opportunities to create mm-hmm. unusual, weird characters that we've seen. I, I love that I as well. I get your side of it. I get your side that if you include too much of that stuff, it does make it very likely that somebody at the table is going to do something like really unfair. Mm. I don't know. Maybe it's just my perspective with playing with other teenage boys that sort of made me realize how ridiculous people will push their ideas and it's sort of the beauty of D&D that they discovered that they have this almost limitless sort of see of what they can do and they want to expand that and they want to create their perfect tailored subclass and that's lovely you know that's such a great thing that like they have the outlet to do it but I feel like when it comes at the cost of everyone else's enjoyment of the game I tend to say no and usually my rule if i'm more relaxed is that you can use homebrew if you talk to me about it first you can use you can use any playtest content if you talk to me about it first and i'll tell you how i feel and i'll give them i won't necessarily say no or yes outright i'll tell them what i think of the subclass i mean sometimes i'll just say no but i'll tell them what i think of the subclass and give them my experience with it and see how that changes their opinion and if they're so attached to this character idea and it wouldn't hurt the entire game and it's just a fun thing i'd be yes you know this is their opportunity to do the thing have that they enjoy saying yes there have been times where i was not a strict enough dm that i let them bring in homebrew items and they'll be like oh but it's it's a cursed blade and it's got a demon soul in it right or some edgy whatever right which will balance out all the good right? stuff. And they'll be like oh right just because it's so good but then there's like one bad thing right that balances it all out right and the bad thing will be like oh i had disadvantage in my movement speed is had for like one minute or whatever but the good thing is it automatic crits the entire turn and i have plus 14 and i play with friends that enjoy the game in different ways like i have my friend who will min-max in some ways and trying to figure out how to get the highest bonus to his attack roll and try and get the the fastest movement speed or the longest attack range you know be like huh i I got a 18 1800 foot eldritch blast right and like well he's behind half cover you can't hit him right he's like oh 
you know, and it's like, or I mean, I won't completely shut him down. I'll give him opportunities to flaunt it, or I'll be like, yeah, my character can move uh, 1,000 feet in a single turn. Um, there's a wall in front of you. Like, what are you going to do, right? And it's trying to find ways to give people an incentive to not just go all in and this ridiculous everything in one basket or everything in every basket to a point where no one else has anything to put in baskets, you know? And then on the complete other end of the spectrum, I have a friend beep, who has no idea how to make a character that viably works in any aspect of it except roleplay, you know, and doesn't know how to balance the three pillars of D&D, right? And he'll put so much into roleplay and he'll enjoy it so much, but he'll struggle to find enjoyment in any combat or encounter because he just he had no idea how to create his stats in a meaningful way that made a character that doesn't completely fall on its face, you know, and he'd create this grizzled backstory. Right. But then how can your character be so grizzled if they're only level one, you know, um, and he'll be like, oh, yeah, I overcame this pack of wolves. But realistically, when it would come down to it, he the stats, the way he played it, he would not be able to overcome the pack of wolf, <laughs> wolves. Right. And I feel like. We, we at yeah. some point should do a, an episode all about backstory. Yeah. Um, and how not to overdo it. Not to overdo it. Don't be crazy. how to work with your DM and other players to create hooks. Exactly. And bonds and things you can grow into. And I think that's why so, I love Critical Role. Yeah, it, well, they've done a great job of it. Um, but yeah, how to, how to also, yeah, use, use the backgrounds that either exist or to custom put them together to give you, you know, some neat things for your character uh, that help help inform your decisions mm-hmm. on what they would do in various circumstances. Um, and I suppose when we get to that, we can also get into a debate over whether we need alignments at all anymore. But mm, right, that's that a that's another progress. argument for another day. Uh, we've been going for nearly forty minutes. Uh. Is there anything else you want to bring up on this discussion? Do you want to talk about anything else? I mean, I've got a couple other talking points, but... All right, let's one more, one more quick point, and we'll wrap it up for the day. Right. I suppose this is another question, and maybe this is a good thing to round out. I don't know how long this will take. Why do you love 5th edition? And do you love 5th edition more than any other edition of D&D? Okay, so... How is your relationship so with 5 on this. to everything I've else? I've played 1st edition, I've played 2nd edition... And I've played fifth edition. Uh, there was a pretty big gap in the middle there, and I, I have gone back and learned what was third and three point five and four were all about. Do we have three point five manuals? Uh, we we have. There's the old ones. I know we have. We have most of the. We have all the fifth edition books, and yeah, like a couple curious, of the base. A question. I, 3.5 ones? I'm not sure if those are 3.5 or 4. I don't know. I've read... No, I think 4 is different. But I've read the 3.5 rule books, and I love the 5th edition rule books. I do, too. I think... Okay, so... These three pillars are great, and all the UA stuff can be great. Um, and all these cool character things can be great. The, the whole challenge of creating a great roleplay game is one that has just enough rules to make it fun not so many rules that it gets bogged down and you lose the, the roleplay and the character and the story components of it, right? You want 
you need a combination of things that are really good. And and there's something about 5e which I really love that way. Like they have the balance on it. I think probably the best it's ever been. Right. Um, but also I think it's more than that. There's a culture right now. The fact that we are not the only D and D podcast. In fact, mm. there's right. like the ability to sit and watch others play D and D. That there's you know people like the you know Jeremy Crawford who sits and does sage advice uh, and will explain you know the rules of D&D to hear straight from the top people and have them interacting on things like Twitter like we live in a time that it's, it's not just about the addition it's not just about the rules but it's the ecosystem that is 5e mm-hmm. uh, which is so fantastic we have so many great role models uh when people show up, even if they're quite new to the table, there's people who've watched Critical Role, there's people who've seen great role play in action, and they come to the table, again, no experience in improv, no theater backgrounds, nothing, but they show up at the table and they're doing the thing, and they're doing it well. And, mm. you know, that's why I think I like fifth edition. I, My memories going back to first edition are of, you know, Gygaxian meat grinders of running dungeons that we've built on graph paper that are full of traps and horribly unbalanced encounters that are essentially designed just to chew up pieces and spit them out and and I don't know like I I guess at the time I used to think that was fun uh, once upon a time although it meant that we all built fighters with as much AC and damage dealing capabilities as possible Whereas, you know, the role-play component was, was very small uh, at that point. I suppose uh, it's, again, just an age factor. And something that I've experienced with my friends is that while some of my friends l- love it, they love doing role-play, I have many friends who have no understanding of how to begin role-play. Yeah. And they sort of embody themselves and get awkward with it and just sort of laugh about what they're doing in real life you know not really acting as the character but acting as themselves and they don't have to be and they don't have to they don't have to there's no rule that says that you can describe what your character does you don't have to do silly voices you don't have to it's great if you can though it's fun it's great to see if even people try and and I'm totally okay with like I have this one guy we play with all the time who's he's a solid great player but the voices on his characters from session to session, they, they move a, a long ways. Like, I, I look over at him, like, sometimes I have to say, like, is your character doing a silly voice or are you just trying a new accent? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, yeah, this is the new voice of the character. I'm like, okay, okay, that's cool. That's fine. Just, just checking. Um, and that's, yeah, it's, it's hard, I think, to try and stay... In a voice. Yeah, or even to show up at the table and know what it is. Like, you right. can see, I've seen... You see the pros, uh, you know, critical role, whatever, critical right? Role whatever you guys. listen to, they're, right? They move a little bit as well, the yeah. Until they settle into their character, and then some of them have dramatic voice changes in the middle. It's like almost like a running they joke now, right? Um, yeah. So I get, I get that there's players who want to just do damage or stuff. exactly, and you know, to that end, I think as a DM you can cater to that. Mm-hmm. There, Absolutely, in the back of the DM's guide. There are extra rules for doing combat with minis on a board. 
Um, a lot of us play with like some things like flanking is a fairly common rule, mm -hmm. but there's other rules in that section um, as well. And you know, if if you've got friends who are really in just to the combat bit, maybe you're like, okay, let's let's just set up, you know, battle maps that are really cool, and let's do that. Let's yeah. Let's hack and slash and have some fun. Roll for it. You know, each game pretty much starts with the words roll initiative. And Finn ends when you say, you know, how do you want to do this? Like, right. Uh, and yeah, the stuff in between is, you know, very sh small snippets of you, the DM, explaining how they've gone from one fight to another. There's nothing wrong with doing D&D &D that way. Like, right. It does, I sort of feel like, lose a couple of those other pillars. But if... If that's the game you want to play, then talk to your players about it. I mean, if it's the game you all enjoy, then throw your friends into a meat grinder, you know? Absolutely. If they uh, if they want combat, there's no shortage of monsters in the monster manual. And I suppose this podcast is our reflection on what we enjoy about D&D. &D. And again, there is, like we've said, no wrong way to play it. Sure. Uh, at the same time, like, while I enjoy the role play, if I go two sessions... Without... With combat, you get a bit antsy. Combat, right? I'm a bit like, okay, what's happening? We better there better be a bit of fight starting the next one. Like, there's got to be. Yeah, there's a there. balance between the I'm three pillars, walk you know. Into a tavern and start a fight just for the sake of. And it. you can feel it with combat when there's no combat, but I think sometimes role play is the same thing. Like I sort of start losing interest in a campaign when I feel like the role play is weakening, or you know, the story, the story or the story is weakening, you know, and like the role, like there is role play in terms of a DM. They are the most important role play. And I feel like when I play with my DMs that all focus on combat, I sort of slowly lose interest in what's happening in the story because they'll just throw more encounters at me and they might not care about it. And we just want to play two different games. Yeah. And I think this is where the one shot or two shot sort of thing. can be beautiful. Because the story on it is, tends to be very simple. Exactly. Uh, you can get into it. You know, you don't have to stay committed. And it doesn't burn out as sure. much as other campaigns. They very clearly build in difficulty. Absolutely. And they test your, yeah, they sort of test your skills in a bunch of different ways. Um, that, yeah, usually ends up in a big fight at the end against a big baddie of some sort, which is, you know, the, that's still D&D. That's still one of the, the parts that 5e does not disappoint on. It's still a great fight. Yeah. Well. So that brings us to the end of episode, episode two. two. We are working on a number of things of trying to improve our audio quality. Right. Uh, We're experimenting with different setups, seeing how things work out. And trying to move forward knowing that you don't need to be perfect to get going. And I think that's a great motto for anybody out there looking at getting into D&D &D if you haven't done it before. Mm -hmm. Even if you've never DM'd before. Uh, really, you do it for you, you know? It's it's your fun, and it's fun with your friends, you, you know? You don't have to be perfect to You don't have done. to be perfect. You don't have to know every rule in the game. You don't. You can play just the most simple, basic, you know, get one or two friends together, you know, theater of the mind make it up roll some yeah. dice have some fun uh yeah you don't have to be perfect uh, to have a great time so yeah get in there and enjoy i think that's a nice place to end episode two thank you for joining me uh -huh.
I'm Jay Oway. I'm Jack Oway. We are 